Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode of Bible Biogs in 30 minutes, we're going to be talking about Noah. Well, probably one of the most well-known stories, maybe too well-known. I mean, I suppose I should ask you first of all, Mike, is it, isn't it just a children's story, Noah and the Flood? Absolutely not. The Bible presents this very much as a part of early human history with real people and real events. The interesting thing is archaeological discoveries have shown there to have been a massive widespread flood in the ancient world. And it's interesting that every ancient culture has a flood story. Now, some people have said, yeah, well, the Bible's just stolen that, hasn't it? Well, it could be, but what I think is much more likely is that there was ancient folk memory of a massive, huge flood that actually happened in the ancient world that each race and people group and religion developed its own stories around. But there was clearly both memory reflected in ancient literature and reflected in archaeological discoveries that shows a massive flood absolutely happened. I'm sure we'll go into the detail in a second, but what do you say a massive flood? I mean, a flood across the whole earth? Well, some Christians think it's really important that it is a flood over the whole earth. But if you think about it, that would require an incredible amount of water. And for me, what the more important thing is, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament doesn't actually require us to believe that. It talks about the flood covering the whole now, sometimes translations have land, earth. The Hebrew word is Eretz. It's the word that's used for the land of Israel today, Eretz Israel. It can mean land, earth, region. So the Hebrew doesn't actually specify that. And for me, one of the interesting facts is it's not until the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10 that God scatters people across the whole earth. So it seems much more likely that this was a huge regional flood in the Middle East that wiped out life that had developed in those early years from Adam and Eve up to the time of Noah. So a flood across the known earth might be another way of putting it. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just <laughs> get it clear in our minds what the context was. What, what, what was, according to the Bible, what was happening in the world, the known world, at that time? things were getting bad. We left off the story in our last episode with Adam and Eve being expelled from the Garden of Eden. God still being there, but them having lost this special intimate relationship with him. And things really go downhill from that, that point. So in Genesis 4, we get the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy and his cause to flee. And between Genesis 4 and the start of the Noah stories, what we get is, it's actually an incredible picture of humanity because we start to see humanity at its best and humanity at its worst. We're told in some of those early chapters about how people developed metalworking 
music, some of these good things mm. of humanity. And yet at the same time, there is a development of godlessness. And I think that is so true of the world today. We look at the world today and we see at times acts of incredible selflessness and, and courage. Mm. And yet at the same time, from the same humanity, acts of incredible sickness and depravity. And this is the picture we get ever since the fall with Adam and Eve, like of, of the human race spiraling downhill, going further and further away from God and just gradually turning away from the Lord. Does the Bible tell us what God kind of felt about that, what, what, his, what his reaction was? It does. It tells us that God's heart was really broken over this. I think we can understand that. It, you know, if you just think of any parents out there listening who've seen their kids wander off in a way that they wouldn't have wanted for them, got into stuff they wouldn't have wanted them to do, and the pain that you feel as a parent for seeing your kids not doing what you know is the best thing for them. That's the picture that we get in Genesis 6 of God feeling incredible pain because these beautiful people that he has created, the crown of his creation is starting to break his heart. In fact, the Bible says in uh, Genesis 6 that the Lord was sorry he'd ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. It sounds like a very human reaction. Very. And of course, since we saw in the last episode that humans are made in the image of God, where do we get that from? We get it because our God himself is one who feels that sort of pain so as a result, things go wrong. So as a result, he couldn't ignore that. He, he, he had to do something about it. Well, things are just getting so worse and worse that God decides the only thing he can do is to start again. It goes on to say in chapter 6 how God was grieved. That's quite a, mm. a powerful word that he'd made the human race. He's so sad that that people are messing up so much. And of course, it's not just about people messing up. When people mess up, they mess up other people. No one just messes up themselves, no matter what the issue is. So people are messing up and messing up other people, ruining God's beautiful creation, getting more and more into sinful ways, turning more and more away from God until God says, do you know what? I'm really sorry that I've done this. And then he says, I'm going to destroy every living thing, all the people, animals, because I'm sorry I ever made them. Wow. I, I find that such a powerful thing. You can feel the pain in God's heart there, David, can't you? So, so God actually had regrets. Well, we have regrets, but it sounds like God had regrets. Yes, it does, doesn't it? And I think, again, this is an expression of you know, God is not some machine sitting unfeeling in the sky somewhere. The, this is a God of relationship who made human beings to know him and be like him and love him. And like any parent with a way which child feels pain, feels regret. I, I'm sure parents must have had regrets at times when they've seen their kids doing stupid things. And God feels regret and says, do you know what? This has got so bad. And clearly this must have been over a period of time. We're not given a time scale 
for these early chapters of Genesis. And when we try to impose a timescale, we end up in trouble. It's simply a very long period. And over that long period, things are getting worse and worse. The human race is going down and down. And it's as if there's no one who is reflecting humanity as God wanted it to be. Well, no one except one person, of course. One person. This is Noah. Yes. So (laughs) Noah seems to stand out from from the crowd. Uh, Again, what does the Bible tell us about Noah? It does. We're introduced by by being told that Noah found favour with the Lord. And it goes on to say in Genesis 6 that Noah was a righteous man, the only blameless person living on earth at the time, and he walked in close fellowship with God. Now, that does not mean he was sinless. Doesn't doesn't mean he was a goody two-shoes. No, and it certainly doesn't mean he was sinless because the Bible tells us only Jesus was sinless. What it does is mean is that he was a man who tried to line his life up with God. He, he did what was right. One of the Hebrew words here means he was he was pious. He was devout. Now, being pious and devout doesn't mean being, yeah, a goody two-shoes. We still get things wrong, and he no doubt got things wrong. Mm-hmm. But he was a man who walked in close fellowship with God. He, he'd not lost this sense of God being there and wanting relationship with him. And it's that that God sees and says, aha, there's a man that I can do something through. So the spotlight sort of falls on Noah in amongst all this darkness, and he's commissioned to build this ark. Uh, well, I mean, well, tell us what about that. Well, what exactly is that? Yeah, well, God says what I'm going to do is to send this great flood. So Noah, what I want you to do is I want you to build this big boat and uh, you're going to go in it with your family and animals um, and you're going to escape this flood that's coming. Now, we just read that story and think, oh, yeah, that was quite a thing to do, wasn't it? But remember where this story was set. It's set in the sort of region that we would probably call Iran-Iraq these Mm -hmm. days. It's a desert region. To put it into perspective, over the summer months, that part of the world has 0.2 millimetres of <laughs> rain in three months. Right. So they don't have rain. Right. It's not well endowed with rivers. And God suddenly says to this guy, you're going to see so much water that it's going to flood the whole earth, build an ark. Now, this is going to take some faith <laughs> for Noah to build. And some time, presumably. Yes, it's going to take some time. Now, we're not actually told how long, but it was certainly um, a pretty long time. In fact, a reconstruction of the Ark has been made in the USA recently. And it's interesting that if you look at their website, you find that to build that modern Ark took a thousand craftsmen Mm -hmm. using modern tools, modern fastenings, (laughs) nail guns and all of these things, four years (laughs) to build right. a thousand craftsmen four years to build mm, that was and here's recently, Noah and his family yeah, yeah. now okay they didn't have health and safety in those days and probably things were a little bit simpler but it probably gives us a sense that this was a pretty long job building this boat and I always like to use godly imagination at this point you know because you can imagine perhaps 
Noah's neighbors walking by, you know, and each day, morning, Noah, morning, Ben. How are you? I'm good. What are you building? I'm building an ark. What's an ark? It's a big boat. What do you need a boat for around here? A flood's coming. What's a flood? It's when rain comes and fills the earth. What's rain? And you can imagine mm. it wouldn't be long before they're laughing at him and thinking, mm. man, these religious guys are just so dumb. Mm. And if I've read the story correctly, it's not just rain that came down. That's right. When the ark is completed and when Noah's gathered his family in, selections of all the animals have come to him. By the way, they came to him. He didn't go looking for them. God brought them. He gathers them in and the rains come down and it says like the, the floodgates of the earth open. Now that reflects something of the cosmology of the ancient world. In the ancient world, they thought the earth was flat, that there were waters underneath that earth and a dome above the earth with waters outside of that. And the Bible obviously had to come to people in a way that they could understand it before uh, we can understand it ourselves. So it's a reflection of that ancient worldview, waters above and waters below. And the waters come down and the waters break out from the underground springs, this water under the earth. What it's saying is the whole of creation is in God's hands. God was the one who made it. God was the one who brought everything into being out of that watery chaos at the beginning in Genesis 1. Now God takes his hands away. And look what happens when God takes his hands away from sustaining the world. Chaos comes back again. And the storms come, we discover in chapter 7. The rains fall, the waters come up. For 40 days it rains. And we often think, oh yeah, Noah's flood, 40 days. Well, the rains came and the waters came for 40 days. But as we read the story, chapter 7 tells us that the flood actually lasted for 150 days. Wow. And then as we go on to chapter 8, we discover that the land wasn't dry for over a year from the time that Noah first went in. So the thinking of the 40-day flood, sure it was, but the whole experience lasted, the Bible tells us, for over a year. Mm. Just coming back to what I said at the beginning about this being a children's story, it is well known as a children's story, but clearly there's a lot more depth and significance to it, for sure. And even Noah and his family are portrayed as these little sort of cartoon characters, but these are real people facing mm. a real situation. As you reflected on, on that relationship, between Noah and his and his family, what, what what does the Bible sort of tell you about that? Well, it's interesting that it specifies Noah as being the godly one rather than his family. Now, we simply aren't told anything about them. Were some of them true believers like him? Were some of them hangers-on? We're simply not told. But here's the grace of God in determining to fulfil the purpose he had in creating human beings that he takes the whole of this family, yet real people. This is not a children's story. This is not a fable. This is something that really happened and that brings home to us in very stark language. You know, God does love us, but the point comes when God says enough to sin. 
And especially when sin is spreading and affecting others, God says, enough. And judgment comes. And that's one of the messages that comes through the Bible and again and again. And, you know, we can't really take that judgment aspect out because this is this is God, yes, being offended in his holiness. But I always think of it much more as aching in his heart that human beings are just ruining their lives and the lives of others. So in the grace of God, Noah and his family are brought into the ark. We don't know his wife's name. We know his son's names and they have wives, I think is how the story unfolds. Yes, that's right. Poor poor old Mrs. Noah is just um, Mrs. Noah. Uh, so often the ladies' names aren't mentioned. Again, a cultural reflection of the time not to put women down in any way. In fact, women will have some incredibly key roles in the Bible at, at, at particular points. So Noah and Mrs. Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth, who the Bible says the people groups of the earth developed from those three sons are the ones who will eventually come out of the ark after this year period uh, of living there. By the way, I've often thought, what must it have been like to have lived there in the ark? You're essentially, you know, you're not on a cruise liner. <laughs> a cruise ship these days would be great, wouldn't it, for a year, you know, if you were being looked after. But this is essentially a floating wooden box. Mm. It doesn't even look like a ship. Mm. It's just a box. And it's got a gap at the top with a roof over it to let the air out. It's got three floors, the Bible tells us, for the animals. Now, anyone who's been around animals... <laughs> even the cat, will know that there's a certain amount of clearing out that needs to be <laughs> In done. In a confined space as and well. And I've often thought, oh, my goodness, the confined space, all these animals, I bet they needed a lot of shovels is all I can say. And again, this reflects the reality of this story, the nitty-grittiness of this story that Noah went through. Is there any hint, based on what you were sharing in the previous episode, about humanity and animals being created on the same day? Well, I think what it shows is that in God also wanting to preserve animals, it shows that the whole of creation is important to God. Man and animal do belong closely together. They are distinct. We saw that in our last episode, both created on day six, but by distinct acts of creation. But it's as if God is seeing that there is some close link between the human race and the animal race, that we, in a sense, need one another, that our lives are somehow bound up together, having both been created on day six. And so God preserves the animals. Of course, they'd be needed in the new world that would come after the flood. They're going to be needed, certainly, for farming purposes. And we're told very specifically after the flood, that they can be used as food as well. When the flood is over, when the water has receded and Noah and his family emerge from the ark, what's the first thing that, that Noah does? One of the first things he does is to build an altar to God. Uh, chapter 8, verse 20 says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma uh, and said, 
I'll never again curse the grain because of the human race, even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil from childhood. I'll never again destroy all living things. As long as earth remains, they'll be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And I think this is a picture for us, a window for us into what Noah was like. The first thing he does is to build an altar to God. He would simply have taken stones. That's how altars were done. Piled them up, made an altar and sacrificed some animals to God as a way of saying, God, thank you so much. You kept your promise. You did indeed bring the flood, but you also did what you said and you're making a new beginning. So a window here into Noah's heart that this is a man who really wants relationship with God, who's grateful to God and who wants God to be at the center of his life. You know, and the first thing we do often after a time of challenge is often a reflection of where our heart really is. Mm. And that was also a witness for his family, of course. You know, it, it doesn't seem to say that the family built the altar. Noah built the altar. Yes, it's interesting. The focus is always on him, isn't it? Now, in a sense, we can't read into silence. Um, it could be that they didn't believe. It could be that they did believe and weren't there. But the focus is on this, again, one representative man, just like we had Adam as the representative man in our last episode. Here's Noah. Yes, a real man doing this, but, but also a representative man showing this is the sort of man and woman, man in its general sense there. This is the sort of person that I'm looking for, one who whose first response will be to build an altar to me in their hearts, who will put me right at the centre of their lives and say, God, we want you there. This is sort of still painting a picture of Noah as being Mr. Perfect. It is, but we will go on to discover um, he's maybe not as perfect as we think. Um, because one of the things we go on to find is that as we go on into uh, chapter nine, uh, God, first of all, makes a covenant with Noah and he repeats the blessing that he'd given to Adam. Be fruitful and multiply. Here it is. We're starting all over again. So God makes this covenant. And of course, he gives the covenant sign, the rainbow. Now, that doesn't mean that it was at this point God created rainbows. God simply takes something that is there and says, from now on, that rainbow will be to you a symbol that I've made a covenant with you never to flood the earth again. That's why I love looking at rainbows mm. and remembering. So this, this is a sort of promise. This is a sort of reboot of of what God intended in the first place. Absolutely. And I think that's what we're getting in chapter nine is this, this is how God wanted it to be. A reboot is great because the wording is so similar. Be fruitful and multiply exactly what he'd said. So here's a new beginning. And I think this is again, the great repeated story of the Bible with God. There is always the possibility of new beginnings. We see it again and again. All God is looking for is someone who will turn to him and say, God, we got it wrong. 
but I believe I can make a start with you. And as we look at some of these characters over the coming year, we're going to see that, yeah, they weren't Mr. Perfect. They weren't Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. Many of them messed up big time. But wherever God found someone who opened their heart to him, God is ready to make a covenant and an agreement, a relationship between them and to forgive them and to make a fresh beginning. You know, and even for listeners today, it may be that someone who's listening has feel they've really messed up big time and just how on earth could God ever accept me or forgive me again? Every story of the Bible is about how God takes not nice people and good people, but messed up people and gives them a new beginning. And for listeners today, God can give them their new beginning, their rainbow moment of forgiveness and starting again. Let me just come back to that word covenant you've used. You also sort of use the word agreement. What 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 kind of agreement are we talking about? Is it is it a a, a two-way agreement, a one-sided agreement? What, what sort of agreement is it? Yes, covenants were really common in the ancient world. And the reality is there were different types of covenants. Some were one-sided, some were two-sided. But the sense that the Bible uses this word covenant, binding agreement is how I often like to describe it. An agreement that can't and won't be broken. It's very much one-sided. We'll see probably in a later episode that God makes a covenant with Abraham on one occasion. Does it while he's asleep? <laughs> Does it through a vision with God appearing as a smoking pot passing between animals that have been slaughtered while Abraham's asleep? It's almost as if he's saying, you can't do a thing about this, Abraham. Just stand by and watch while I do it. And that's what happens here because, yeah, Noah was a man who had sought to please God. He'd found favor with God, but he wasn't perfect, as we're just going to see in a moment. But with this still not perfect man, God sees his heart and says, I see what's in your heart. I'm going to make a lasting agreement with you. I'm going to reach out to you. And I'm going to do for you what you can't do for yourself. That is still the great message of Christianity. I was talking to a friend only today who'd been sharing the gospel with someone. A young guy was really open, but saying, I really need to get my life sorted out. And then I'm going to start coming to church. <laughs> and my friend said to him, no, our God is the God who gets your life sorted out first so that you can come to him. It's never the other way around. And that's what a covenant is. It's a binding agreement of a God who's so loving and gracious and powerful who comes to us and grabs hold of us and makes agreement with us and says, I will never let you go because you believed in me. So even though we might let ourselves down or let God down, and even if Noah lets God down, God keeps that promise. Absolutely. In fact, there'll be a little bit of Noah letting God down in the end of the Noah story. It tells us that as they begin to settle again, that Noah began to cultivate the ground and planted a vineyard. And one day he drank some of the wine from the vineyard that he'd made, and he ended up having too much to drink. And the guy ended up drunk. Now, maybe there were no manuals in those days that <laughs> warned you about things like that, but I'm sure he must have sensed something's not quite right here, kept drunk drinking, mm -hmm. ends up drunk 
ends up in his tent naked and his sons see him and out of that whole other story will come. But here's this guy who he got it wrong. He wasn't perfect, but he was in covenant with God. And when we're in covenant with God, God takes hold of us and never lets us go. The Bible seems to indicate that he he lived for another 350 years after the flood and died at the age of 950. Yes. How does all that make sense? I don't know, but his arthritis must have been pretty bad by then. <laughs> it's all I can think. Look, there are one of two possibilities, and I always like to be honest and say to people, look, equally Bible-believing Christians see this in different ways. Some would see this as real ages, and these ages possible because is in a world that still hadn't been destroyed and messed up by sin and ecology and all the other things like ours have today. The other is that these numbers are symbolic. It's interesting we find big numbers like this in, in the accounts of other religions and their early stories, reflecting that certainly there was longevity, but these numbers may have been symbolic. And we do know that numbers were often used symbolically. Uh, in Judaism. The number seven is one that many Christians will be familiar with. Representing perfection. Absolutely. So was it this many years? Could well have been. Or was it symbolic of an exceedingly long life? I think the whole point is what it is saying is, here was a man who did what was right, who lived with God, and who because of that was rescued by God and lived an exceedingly long and blessed life. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favorite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.